Bookworm Games, episode 39, The Secret of Strength. It's time to head for that mountain in the distance, Bledavik, the capital of Ave. You'd be forgiven for expecting a more clandestine approach, but given control of the Yggdrasil, you get to do some sand cruising. No enemies attack you, none seem to be able to see you from the air either, for when you're ready to progress the story and you arrive in town, the first thing you see, besides the elaborate town map, is the arrival of the Gebler airship. We switch over to its commanders, Ramses and Yang. From their perspective, we see their bridge is more bright, it's less of a steampunk feel than the pirate's vessel. The commands and responses ring out crisply, and then the two of them stride into the docking bay with even more entitlement than the Gebler attack squad showed. On the receiving end is not only Shakan, the puppet ruler of the Desert Kingdom, but also the lumbering oaf of a soldier called Vanderkalm. Each of these four new characters is striking in their design in different ways, Ramses has a solemn, ambitious look, with his blonde hair and dark cloak looking the fascist part. Niang resembles Ellie in her outfit, but her hair is the color of the woman in the crash landing scene at the end of the prologue, just as Ellie looks much like the women in the captain's locket. Shakan has a severe bald crown and a virile mustache, He's wearing an expression of subtle craft and supercilious amusement. And finally, Vanderkalm, his heavy lips parted stupidly. His whole face is tattooed with a cross. It seems that they haven't heard about the failed raid yet, but Ramses has meanwhile scored a brilliant victory, and Vanderkalm has bungled things again elsewhere along the battlefront. This is why the latter has been removed from his command, and why the former has been sent to take over Gebler operations on the surface. Ramses is as arrogant as he looks. He ostentatiously shows rudeness not only to his officer, but to his host as well, striding ahead without acknowledging his welcome, so that Chakan, in his long crimson robes, has to trot to catch up. He is rebuked for his rudeness, in turn, to Margie, though it seems likely that Shakan hasn't actually shown any, aside from imprisoning her, of course. As they're about to go in and meet her, Ramses and Miang mention the possibility that the treasure Shakan is after, which presumably Mar Margie knows the, the key to, might be a relic. But somehow, they would have sensed if it was, or perhaps it is being inhibited by some barrier. They have access to records just like Bart's, it seems, and are on the track of the Omnigear, too. We'll hear more about these relics later. While Ramses puts on his suavest politeness for their guest, he acts very differently around women, it seems, the perspective shifts yet again to a spy camera looking in on Margie's room. The prisoner 
we see is a girl in a flouncy orange-red outfit who complains of not being able to find the chiffon cake that she used to love. Perhaps all the bakers have died in the war, she says. She gives just a hint that she might be wiser than she wishes to appear. It's decidedly creepy to be spying on her in this way from Shakan's perspective, as it turns out. It drives home the political machinations at play, how none of these parties can trust one another. They can barely bring themselves to be civil when they're allied, and they let their words drip with sarcasm when they're opposed. Margie seems to successfully play dumb, saying she's already given her part of the Jasper over and that she has no idea where the other is, but would like some cake next time, please. With that, we rejoin Faye, Bart, and Satan at the front gate of the city. Again, the town map laid out before you is a sophisticated affair. As we'll see in other large cities throughout the game, separate sections are marked on a kind of mini-world map along with large areas indicated visually but not actually accessible to the player, such as an industrial area with its hangar that we saw the airship go into, and what looks like residential districts all around the base of the mountain. Entering the part that we can go into, we're greeted by the ambient noise of the market, all through which the camera pans in a long swoop before settling above Fay again. Here, and even more clearly in the square beyond, you can see that the banners seem to read Fiesta de Ave, implying that the language spoken here is actually Spanish, or that anyhow it bears some analogous relationship in the world of the game to Spanish in the real world. Perhaps a mellifluous romance language connoting anything from carnivalesque parties to colonialism and oppression. There are shouts from vendors, running kids, and right away someone suggests that you go to the hotel if you need a place to stay. What you'll actually find there, whether you go in through the front door or via the open window, is the nun in her hotel room, which becomes your unofficial headquarters, for she too is a secret agent trying to free Margie, the great mother of the Nissan sect, about which more next time. But let's plunge in here a little more, poetically. Heat and hullabaloo held forth in the market, echoing shouts, elegant shawls lost to sight down alleyways and beyond dark awnings across the arches. Drumbeats, dull in the distance, poured down the mountain. Here, at its base, humanity throbbed and frothed. Children at play, chided by grandparents going about their bargain hunting. Bananas and berries, fresh bread and red radishes. And chased by the stall keepers for stealing. They couldn't catch them, but Faye, cornering a couple in a back courtyard, bid them be careful streetwise orphans of the ongoing war. A trio marched determinedly, taunting Kislev's steamheads, while one on his lonely rooftop 
stood looking, perched on a crate to stand a little higher, to see a little further north. Others na-nad, whooped and hustled, held out their hide-and-seek badge for Faye's superior detection, who found them five times in a row. The kid behind the armor shop, Innocence, his breastplate, and the siblings above the gear merchants, gossiping, dreading a dismal betrothal to Bandercom, the dishonored general. All this the sister mused on, plotting her move, when the three strapping visitors arrived via her open window. She laughed the first time in ages, longing for Nissan, to see the young master, met his companions. They pulled their knowledge, gained piecemeal from the old folks by the laundry pumps, where the water's the one thing that hasn't changed. And rumors fluttering like banners, shining like lost balloons on the rabid betting in the tournament. To turn those festive vices to their advantage, Fay and Satan left Bart below in the square and signed him up as one beloved wanderer, a late entrant for the prize. The busy main street forms a kind of channel between two halves of the downtown, a very interesting layout which conjures both Middle Eastern bazaars and ancient cliff dwellings. Breaking the symmetry is the ethos headquarters off on its own by the front gate. And yet, we learn here for the first time of this other religious institution represented by the nuns, which seems like the furthest thing from the excavators of ancient weaponry. That tournament, which Shakan had held out as an olive branch for Ramses, only to be scorned, certainly has the attention of the common people, particularly the soldiers, and others are already up there staking out their viewing places around the arena before the castle keep. Between the summit and the market, there's the fountain square, which doubles each of the other locations in interesting ways. On the one hand, like the market below, it has its channel down the middle, in this case, literal, flowing with water, and its stalls and vendors sprinkled all around. But like the arena above, it's a place of special and not everyday sorts of activity, some of which is purposeful, the toy monger and the food and drink booths, or the earnest soapbox lecturer who regales you with his theory of the sky people. He hints at something which Sigurd will shortly confirm, though he might have some of the details wrong, namely that surface dwellers are abducted by the denizens of the floating city from time to time, and he retells some version of the legend you have heard before from Old Man Bao. You can also learn to breathe fire, two colors, dualistic for mind and body. Or you can have your fortune told by the mystic who specializes in finding lost things. He's even more on target than the researcher, letting you know that Margie is in a tower, which he somehow sees by astral projection, not unlike Satan's. The doc won't let you go into the enticing funhouse tent just yet, 
there's a pesky order of operations which must be observed here. But Faye can get a balloon, only to be mocked by one of the kids. He can drink a Bartweiser, which renders the screen a little wobbly, so you can understand why the retired day drinkers have pulled up their patch of grass. The key to moving things along is fairly simple, but piecing it all together, you should also take the time to relish the vitality of the world conjured for you here in Ave's capital. I tried to allude to some of it in the verse. The hustle and bustle is wonderfully immediate in the game, with people calling to you, the camera swooping around and up to the inn, the kids missing their relatives and making their own way. You can't steal from the market, but you can dine and dash at the restaurant. If you order a meal but don't have enough money to pay for it, you'll be helped by one of the streetwise kids. And similarly, the uh, fortune teller can mystically tell you if you're broke. Between talking to everyone, playing hide-and-seek, signing Faye up for the tournament, choosing some amusing combination of epithets to call him by, you'll glean a plan, putting it together along with the nun, for how to get Margie out safely. It emerges that the hide-and-seek kid, who, like the balloon-hating uh, kid, also mocks you bitterly for beating him at his game, he had gotten lost in the waterworks below the city some time ago and had to be let out with a key. And this is a less harrowing version of what will happen later in Kislev's capital, where people are being murdered in the sewers beneath that city. Bart himself had played down there as a kid, and he has the idea to swim against the current up to the water's source underneath Fatima Castle. That there is an underground spring there evokes the life-giving force of his own family. And it's not surprising that when he arrives, he has a cute interaction with the waterworks mechanic. Like the old folks at the laundry and by the well entrance, this old man remembers the old days fondly. But a bit like Chief Lee, he also wonders, in dirty old man fashion, if Bart could be a secret son of the old king, but doesn't think so. There's this nostalgia which is at once too soon and too late. Too soon, in Lahan's case, uh, and also too late. But in Bledovic, the time is ripe for the recouping of it. There's a couple of curious reminders of Lahan here, too. Once Bart heads for the watercourse, Faye and Satan go to take part in the tournament. Ostensibly, this is to provide a distraction, so fewer soldiers will be patrolling the castle once Bart gets in and those there will be less observant, but it also just happens to, once again, put Faye into a combat situation, while Satan keeps an eye on things as a spectator. And if you stop by the funhouse tent, you can now play a series of surreal games involving children with more balloons and mirrors. Surely 
some of which reflects obliquely on phase psyche, on emerging from the tent. You run into that kid at the bar's dad that you heard about back in Lahan, who is here in the capital making his money. Fei can't bring himself to answer when he asks how things are going back at the village. But his ignorance in this case is bliss. Still more unsettling, and with the same abrupt heartbeat thump sound effect, you come upon Dan, Alice's little brother, in the competitor's tent right before the tournament starts. He'd vowed vengeance, and here he is to publicly humiliate you. The masked man in there might also look familiar from the story of Faye's arrival in Lahan, and he lets Faye know that he knows his real name. Satan's clever plan looks like it's liable to be blown up before the tournament even starts. But fortunately, no one among the bad guys seems to notice that Faye's hidden identity is out there for everyone to hear. No more than they saw you in the Yggdrasil and in your gears right out in front of the city. The perspective shifting continues now, with a brief interlude for Ramses to further belittle Shakan and Yang to graciously cover for the insult, and for the puppet ruler to make his speech to open the games, followed by that rad gong animation. He says, Brave young men are spilling their blood on the front lines. Our army is the best. But the tides of war are uncertain. To protect the tradition of Ave and preserve peace in this desert, we must all have unshaking resolve. The desert is a precious treasure passed down to us from our ancestors. Here we can forge our minds and bodies into one. Our teachers are the sun and wind. We are gathered here today with our strong bodies forged by the desert. The sun above us is the same as that which burns over our fathers at the front. The wind blowing here is the same as that which whisks our resolve and prayers to our sons at the front. This tournament raises our spirits and renews our blessings from this desert we live in. Brave ones, warriors, fight well and do not shame our brothers at the front. As hollow rhetoric goes, this is actually pretty good. Works out pretty well. Under the stirring martial exhortation, it's anaphora, it's a call to action, <laughs> and under Miang's quieter comment on how handsome Faye is, the battling gets underway. The claim that fighting in this way is somehow efficacious, it's a quasi-religious ritual, might actually be reflected in the way that time works here. As much time as Faye spends in each battle, that much time will subsequently play out from Bart's point of view. He goes swimming against the current, racing against the clock. Here. Hence, you want to take your time with Faye, 
as Satan hints to you, that you shouldn't win too quickly. And you want to hurry along with Bart, avoiding battles for the most part. An interesting inversion of each one's character, or rather, a confirmation that each understands what they are fighting for. In practical terms, each of the tournament rounds is quite distinct. The same strategy won't serve equally well in each. Up until now, you should have been either using death blows to clear out your foes quickly, or, if you're doing some more long-term thinking, you're probably utilizing varying series of different point-valued combo a la carte attacks to more quickly learn your stronger death blows. At this point, though, several of the battles are going to be difficult to win without stringing your death blow techniques into a long chain combo because of the counterattack program of your opponents. You have to attack once and then cancel the rest so as to bank those attack points before being able to unleash them in a sped up sequence of sparkly strikes. This might also be the first time you're actually going to need to heal yourself during battle. Fortunately, you also have a chance to heal, re-equip before and between each fight, too. So, the difficulty only escalates in the sense that there are tricks to beating each of your opponents here. Gotta use your combos against the Brawler Gonzalez, the Crowd Pleaser Big Joe, the Chemist Scud, each of whom has more HP than Faye, but their attacks are considerably weaker. Big Joe doesn't seem to really be trying, though his stylish sliding blows and poses engage the crowd to throw things at Faye for considerable damage. Scud deploys various status-changing items and has a bottomless supply of attack bees, and meanwhile, Bart should be sure to climb the drain pipe up to the aquarium in the restaurant to snag the gold nugget in its treasure box before he goes sneaking around the castle, plucking a few suits of armor and hawks of hanging meat. These little secrets and tricks are some of the most wonderful in the game, reminiscent of being back in Lahan, and perhaps because it's, uh, after all, this that is Bart's homecoming. As time flows from one to the other, Dan puts up the toughest fight of all in the semifinal, hitting you with a chi uh, kamehameha of the sort that Faye can only use with Weltall's ether amplification. By opting to only defend and not fight back, you can cause Dan to lose his nerve eventually curses you for your chivalry and throws the wedding dress of his sister in your face. Morbidly enough, it becomes an equipment you can use for a boost to your ether and ether defense. The final round against Wise Man is the exact opposite in that he does not fight back, but he also effortlessly dodges every one of Faye's attacks taking no damage at all. By now, you should have added an Iron Valor Chi technique to your repertoire. 
much like Shikan spoke of in his address. You'll also have won some items from each of the other rounds, including a lock of Samson's hair, appropriately enough for the desert setting and in keeping with the biblical themes of the story. This one is able to boost your strength temporarily, but save these for now. They don't help you to lay a finger on the masked man. In lieu of an item, this time you learn something if you listen to wise man's questions. They're questions much like Faye's own that he was asking of the Gebler, and they're about why he is fighting. He knew your name. He knows about your wounds. He says he's glad to see they've healed. Whether that's mocking or sincere is hard to tell. You have to ask, is he more like Graf, who wants to use Faye's power, even though he fights you directly rather than sending a proxy? Or is wise man more like Satan, another wise man, who seems to want what is best for Faye? He doesn't, like Bart, seem to want to befriend you, but he does claim to know something about you from the way you fight him. Whereas all you've learned from him is that he seems much stronger than he's letting on. He's very perceptive, of course, and he too is very concerned about time. For abruptly, he'll declare that it's time already. It's that time. Could he mean the time of the gospel? Seems to be looking up to the sky. And he springs away, ending the fight. Is it true, as he says, that Faye's search for purpose is doomed so long as he considers himself alone? Is it in fact the case that Faye is focused on himself and not on others? And what about that inward, downward gaze is limiting? Is it the connotation of humility, of dejection? At any rate, to the consternation of the spectators, the ref declares Faye the champion. This, like the sewers, will have an echo later in Kislev. Now, as Bart, you can overhear some interesting gossip in the opulent rooms of the castle, grumblings about the old leaders and the new, mostly, and you can pick up a status-affecting weapon of your own, a whip that inflicts poison. It's worth using, despite the slightly lower attack power in the boss fight which follows. On busting Margie out of her room, she pauses just to grab her pink stuffed animal from the couch. I really like this, she says, which opens some questions for us. Did she bring it with her from Nissan, or recover it once she was back here in the tower? Is it Margie's love for it? even in the midst of this answer to her wishes to be rescued, which later animates it, Pinocchio-like, bringing the toy to life. Altogether, it's one of the stranger choices of the game designers that this character, Margie, does not join your party as a playable ally, whereas the other, the pink plush Choo Choo, does. With Ramses and Miang barring your way, Bart and the commander trading insults, a quirky duel ensues in which the women cannot be targeted and nor can they attack, 
but they only heal the men. In Margie's case, this is frustratingly random. So you'll also need to use some of those healing items you've hopefully been picking up along the way. Miang, on the other hand, will have to alternate between healing Francis' status and replenishing his health. Your strategy here is to knock him out with a combo again. But you have to be patient and not attack uh, even once while he is in his nearer stance. This is a strategy players will probably recognize from early boss battles in various Final Fantasy games, where attacking at certain times will trigger a disastrous counter from the enemy. Calling himself a mirror, though, is interesting in the light of Fae's psychological drama, which comes to the surface again here, when Fae himself drops down from somewhere and deals a death blow to the swordsman, triggering a flashback. Just as Wise Man says, fighting can yield a kind of knowledge. In this case, for Ramses, it is no pleasant one. If Faye is worried about where he learned those techniques, it hasn't stopped him from using them anyhow to protect himself and his friends. But the player might be a little wary after seeing what Ramses does in his memory. A wasteland of flames, zoomed out as if for a gear battle, but the gears are drawn up against an unarmed, ungeared fighter, a kid with red hair who uses Faye's style of fighting. If Bart and Ramses have a healthy physical rivalry, replete with trash talk and mutual disgust, lent dramatic impetus by the rescue situation and the beautiful women looking on, Faye and Ramses' rivalry here is something much more psychologically potent. The hatred and fear Ramses feels towards him on connecting his martial arts with his memory of the red-haired warrior, but still more on recalling a stray line of dialogue. Faye, that is my child's name. It's displayed against a white screen and leaves him as if paralyzed after another round in which Faye and Bart together Buffet him. Ramses is dealt another death blow, seeing double his memory and the opponent before him flashing back and forth and overlapping. And then rats, that insult of his, becomes Margie's summon spell to end the fight, making me wish again that she were to join your party as a summoner and healer. What this means for Ramses, though, that he realizes, just as he has allowed these friends to escape just now, he himself, as he puts it, is worthless, a reject. Those words are projected directly onto the game screen. And why would he possibly want to believe that? Get the sense that this is going to be another memory burned into his consciousness. Faye and the others barge into the newly installed elevator to the hangar as soon as a guard emerges from it, 
and they'll continue using Gebler's own assets against them in what follows. For who should they bump into next but Ellie? She immediately helps, hiding them in her cabin until the pitter-patter of the soldiers' feet diminishes down the hall. These sleek, metallic halls, so like the ones in her traumatic memory, and it's maybe getting a little tricky to keep all these traumas past and present straight. Despite Bart's mistrust, Faye puts their lives in her hands, and she doesn't betray them. Perhaps she's even beginning to repay him for the damseling back in the Black Moon when he saved her. And it's more than that. She confesses what she hadn't told him face to face before, but he lets it go since he overheard her talking to Satan anyway about her role in the crash landing at Lahan. And for whatever reason, he doesn't ask her about Graf's supposed involvement in that escapade. Maybe it's just because they're still under so much pressure, needing to get out quickly, and there isn't time. But as Faye puts it, he made up his mind about her long ago. How long? Lifetimes, as we'll see. So, once more, over Bart's protestation, and with Margie warming to her by now, Ellie leads them to the gear launch area and sends them on their way, with the warning, next time they meet, they'll be enemies. She stops short of going with them, much as Faye implores her to. This delay almost causes them to all be captured after all. But as it is, Ramses is all set to give chase in his gear, called Wyverin, when the order comes, surprisingly, to let them go. It's in the form of a message from Hiyu, or Hayu. This seems to be stage-whispered, and Ramses can only wonder, like the player, what Hiyu, Satan, is doing down here that is, on the surface. His, Satan's, is the main perspective we haven't seen the action from, for all that he is repeatedly positioned as a spectator on it. The remainder of the chapter is briefly told. It emerges that Margie was captured while she was trying to rescue her imprisoned sisters. Sisters as in nuns. It was her mom and grandma that it Turns out the rumors were falsely laid to lure her there, and they were already executed. The pathos of this is amazing, as is how lightly she takes it, it seems. And again, it's a shame we don't get to know her story better, the kind of character who can undergo such suffering and yet remain so basically kind and cheerful is either impressively shallow or full of a wise innocence. We'd like to believe the latter. There's the whiff of a romance theme here as well, with the rescue by the dashing prince, but that's confounded by the cousin status of Bart and Margie. Into the breach steps the pink choo-choo doll. First, by blocking the way to the bridge, it leads you to go see Margie in the first place, at which point it comes trotting through the door, asserting its aliveness in a squeaky, cooing voice. 
from scolding Margie, Faye and Bart are left confused because she is as surprised as they are to learn that it, she, is alive. And not only that, but maybe it was not Margie's love after all that brought her to life, but Choo Choo's own love of Faye. Love at first sight. Too cutely, the little creature declares her love and then catches herself, overhears herself having declared her love, and hides her face in embarrassment. If you talk to her again, and happen to have the spider from the treetop of Lahan's mountain path, she will accept it as a juicy, delicious courtship gift, and reciprocates with a valuable ether veiler item, hinting at her magical status, but also recalling Faye's serious love interest, Ellie, with her powerful elemental attacks. We get a few more hints about Bart's character, about his bragging to Margie of he and Faye being buddies, about how his back scarred from protecting her from Shakan's punishments when they were kids. There's this theme again of protecting and being protected, particularly in the ways men and women, adults and children, friends and brothers play these out. For all the cartoonish violence of Ramses's swordsmanship or the battling at the tournament, there's something chilling about wise man's uncanny dodging and the red-haired warrior's fearlessness, which again helps as much as these sorts of stories at once to foreground violence and also to make it meaningful thematically and not simply as cheap entertainment and wish fulfillment. For one last example for now, you see Old Mason moved to tears by Margie's safe return and how he remembers his own escape with the young master with help from Sigurd as a young man hijacking the Yggdrasil in the process. We're left with some serious questions then, as well as some sentimental ones. Who is this Karl Ramses, and what does his being sent mean? Who and where is Hyuga Satan? We steer for the lone tree in the desert where the road to Nisan lies buried. And hopefully some of these answers are bound to come up too. As for the title of this episode, Secret of Strength, Big Joe knows it. Gratitude to all your fans. Their love gives me strength he says. And so, following his advice, thank you for listening. <laughs>